Okay, so um, I just wanted to first say thank you for taking the time out to engage in this critical dialogue. And before we get into it, I wanted to give you the chance to share your name, your pronouns if you have any, and anything else you'd like to let us know about your identity and or what you do for a living. Oh, okay. Um, first, I'd like to thank you for inviting me. I was so um, excited to see your message. It usually takes me like a day or more to respond to people's text messages, and I responded <laughs> to yours in like three seconds. So um, my name is Afia Oporimensa. I prefer to be referred to with pronouns she, her, and hers. Um, I am a Ghanaian-American um, daughter of immigrants um, who specializes in narratives of various kinds as expressed through uh, education, writing, and performance primarily. So my, my primary job now, my job, is that I am director of the Presidential Scholars Program at Princeton University. Um, and this is a new shift in my life after having spent almost a decade as a postdoctoral fellow and um, director of undergraduate research and assistant dean at Oberlin College. Hmm. Thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that um, introduction. And so I wanted to take a moment to allow you to basically let us into your world a little bit. And so I think it's especially grounding, given this moment that we're in, to ask how you're doing, how are you feeling, and what are some of the things that are going on in your world um, that are perhaps pulling you in different directions or making you think about certain things, um, but really just giving you the space to kind of start this conversation by reflecting on what's going on in your world right now. Yeah. I always like to think of the question, how are you feeling, as being really particular to the moment, whether I'm asking it or someone's asking me. And that is a lesson that I learned from injury, actually, and chronic pain. Because in 2012, now a little, just a little bit over eight years ago, I was hit by a car while walking across the street in Oberlin, Ohio, and um, experienced many years of chronic pain coming out of that uh, incident. And in this moment, especially in the moment that has been characterized by the pandemic and quarantine and um, isolation. I've been thinking a lot about the lessons that came to me by way of that accident. Mm. And um, I'm grateful to my therapist at the time who who brought a lot of those lessons to me. And I started going to see her again. I had, I had seen her the year prior um, around the experience of transitioning. At the time, it was my first year at Oberlin College, and I had transitioned there from graduate school at the University of Michigan, and it was a, a big shift in my life because um, Michigan, in addition to the place in addition to being the place where I went to graduate school, is also a place I did a lot of my growing up, and my immediate family is all there. And so this big shift to move to Ohio. And um, and so in this later, so I, I had been in therapy, and, and it, it went great. <laughs> and we decided that we didn't really need to see each other anymore. And then I got hit by the car. And um, for a period of time, I was in pain constantly. And in multiple places in my body because of the way that the, the car had hit me and because of the way that I um, stopped it, really, with my body. I just had a, a zigzag of pain from my left ankle all the way up um, to my, you know, my right wrist. 
and um, uh, the pain felt inescapable. And I, um, I was in so much of it that I couldn't do things that I was accustomed to doing and that I really needed to do to live my everyday life, like sit in a chair. I couldn't sit in a chair for longer than a minute or two before I would be in just terrible pain. And um, I tried all, all kinds of um, modalities of, of treatment that I thought would bring me some relief. And um, for a period of time, the one that brought me the most relief was, was going to a chiropractor. Went to the chiropractor. He gave me an adjustment, and it was, it was the first time that I wasn't in pain. And I thought, oh, this is the answer. If I just keep coming back to the chiropractor, the pain will end. And I remember one day um, riding back home from the chiropractor, and I was still in pain. And I hit a point of absolute despair because I thought to myself, I'm never going to be able to get away from this. This is now, because this is my own body, you know? And mm. um, it doesn't feel like my body. It feels like I'm just trapped in a container of pain. And I couldn't imagine living, even as many years as I had to that point in 2012, I was, I was 31 years old. And I couldn't imagine living that same amount of time again with that much pain all the time. And um, it was the moment in my life that I had come closest to really understanding why somebody would not want to live anymore. Because I had, like, there was a, there was a, a brief vision of clarity around that for me, why I would not want to live anymore if this was the state that I was living in. And um, I had the thought, and then I reflected on the thought, and then I got scared. And I, um, I figured it would be good to go to therapy again. <laughs> So I started seeing my therapist, and um, one of the first things she asked me when we were back in session was, are there any moments when you're not in pain? And I said, very few. And she said, but there are some. And I said, yeah. And she said, what do you do in those moments? How do you spend that time? And I said, I spend that time thinking about the next moment that I'll be in pain. And she said, well, that's a shame. Because then even when you're not in pain, you're still suffering. Hmm. She said, what if you were to try, just play with, she, she liked to use the word play. <laughs> she said, what if you were to just play with, instead of anticipating pain in every moment that you don't have it, celebrate any moment that you feel okay. And um, that whole conversation happened in just a few minutes in a single therapy appointment. It changed my entire life. Changed everything about the way that I live. That's like a mantra for me now. Celebrate every moment you feel okay. Mm. And the lesson that she was teaching me at that time, I realized was about acceptance. And really it's acceptance that has transformed my being and my place in the world, my spirit, everything being present in the present and um, practicing acceptance. Because she, one of the most important things she said to me following, I think it might have been in the next session, she said, um, she asked me, it was a question actually. She said, what are you most scared of? 
And I said, I'm scared that my body will never feel the way it did before. And she looked right at me with the kindest and firmest gaze. And she said, your body will probably never feel the way that it did before. And I bawled furiously, <laughs> sitting in the chair across from her. I cried probably for five minutes straight. Or maybe it was two and it felt like five. But even two minutes of just one person crying in the room is a lot, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, she... She held that moment open for me. And when I stopped crying, she said, but that's true of everyone. None of our bodies are the same as they were before because we're all aging. Just that you've had a particularly acute experience with that. And um, I've been thinking about that that period in my life and everything she taught me um, ever since the period of quarantine began. The last time that I went anywhere that wasn't my apartment or, um, or within walking distance of my apartment was March 21st of 2020. I remember I went to ShopRite on that day to the grocery store. And there were so many people there. <laughs> and I was like, oh, no, I'm not coming back to the grocery store. You can't stay six of us feet away from all these people at the same time. I was like, I'm done with this. I'm going home and I'm staying there. Hmm. Um, and I live alone. I live alone by choice because um, I was a middle child growing up. And so I never got to live alone in my parents' home. And uh, the first time I lived alone in college, it was a revelation. <laughs> and uh, I lived alone a number of years in graduate school, and then there were three years in graduate school when I did not live alone and had such a hard time, I think, engaging in healthy conflict with the people I shared space with that I'm not friends with any of those people anymore. Um, so I was like, okay, I think, you know, until I develop those skills, it'll be good for me to look, keep living alone. So um, I live by myself. And... I like that for many reasons. Um, but one of the hardest things about coming to terms with um, this state of, of isolation, um, of physical distancing that we've all been in, is when I had the thought back in March that I didn't know when was the next time I was going to be able to touch another human being. Hmm. I still don't know that. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really scary for me because I love people. Mm-hmm. And I love touching. I mm-hmm. love intimacy of various kinds. Um, and I... I was so... It was so unmooring the notion that there was an indefinite period of time during which I would not get to exchange the casual intimacy of a hug with another person. Hmm. And experiencing that thought back in March brought me to a really low place. Emotionally, I was very low. Um, I remember feeling like I wanted to just sink lower and lower into my sheets. And it was not the first time I had ever felt that way. I have um, definitely seasonal depressive symptoms. When I, when I can't see the sun, especially for long periods of time, it's, um, it's pretty rough on my emotional health. So I'd had that feeling before, um, the feeling that I wanted to slip in my sheet, into my sheets or the feeling that I wanted to 
just disappear for a while. What was new in this moment was that I didn't want to do anything about it. I had no inclination that I wanted to do anything to feel better. I didn't want to laugh. I didn't want to talk with people on the phone. I didn't want to do any of the 101 things that USA Today said that you could do with this greater amount of time now at your disposable, at your disposal. Um, I didn't want to find a therapist to do, um, you know, telehealth visits with. I didn't want to feel better. And I had never had that experience before of wanting to disappear farther and farther into the chasm of my sheep and not wanting to feel any better than that. Hmm. In the same period of time, um, I was in front of the computer much more. The, the team that I work with adjacently um, at Princeton, because my program is new, I am the team right now. Um, but there's a team that I work kind of adjacent to. And um, they had started having two meetings a day, one check-in in the morning when we started the day and one check-in around 4.30 to, to kind of end the day, share what we'd done, what we needed from each other, anything like that. And um, in addition to that, I was having consultations with students who were working on applications for a fellowship program um, that I work with. And, um, and so I was spending a lot of time hunched in front of my computer, sitting on this dining room chair that I got because it was beautiful and fit my decor and never imagined spending any more than like an hour at a time sitting on. And now it was like eight hours, eight and a half hours a day. I was sitting on this beautiful, hard metal, you know, dining chair that, um, that ended up reactivating my back pain. And the back pain is the, um, the most enduring legacy of the moment that, um, that I was hit by a car, the moment that, that the person drove into me in, in 2012 as I was in the crosswalk in Oberlin. And after much time of um, acupuncture and massage and physical therapy and um, you know, psychotherapy and um, personal training, I, I finally found the combination of things. Mostly it was, it was strength training and, and regular massage that gave me relief from the various forms of pain um, that I had been in uh, constantly for years since 2012. And um, it's just been a couple years. Uh, that I've had long stretches of time without experiencing that pain at all. And I was in such a stretch of not experiencing pain until quarantine when I started spending hours and hours hunched in front of my computer, sitting on this terrible hard metal chair, compressing my lower spine and reactivating all my back pain and, you know, misaligning all kinds of things in my body. And um, so I started, I started experiencing that back pain again, same, same spot on the left side, left side of my lower back. And it sent me further into despair. Already I was in this, this bad emotional place that had to do with um, physical isolation from other people and their bodies. But then I was returned to a place that reminded me so much of the pain and isolation that I had felt in my own body the kind of isolation I had felt from my own body back when I had been hit by the car. And it was the second time in my life that I experienced a sense of clarity about why I might not want to live. Which is not to say I had any plans not to live, but it made sense to me in that moment why I might not want to. That I was spending every day 
alone in this 730-square-foot apartment, watching people walk past on this beautiful street. Springtime in Princeton is just gorgeous. And um, one time my my cousin, uh, who lives just under 20 minutes away, he and his wife and their two tremendous daughters, um, they came to visit. They went to ShopRite, picked up a bunch of food for me, and came and dropped it off on my porch um, in early April. And I, um, they had a project. They wanted to, like, build a fort. <laughs> they found some project on Pinterest or something, and they needed boxes. And I have lots of boxes because I still have not managed to, <laughs> to unbox myself from my move here. Um, and so... I left the boxes for them. They left the food for me. We did the exchange, um, you know, standing. They were at the, the foot of the steps up to the porch, and I was right by the door, and we kind of looked at each other from far away. And um, their youngest daughter, who's five, kind of curled up in her mother's arms looking very unhappy. And my cousin's wife said, she says it's not fair that um, she doesn't get to come in. And I said, yeah, I agree. <laughs> um, it was hard to have them that close and not to be able to touch them. I was happy. It was an absolute joy to see people whom I knew and loved, but it, it was also hard. And so um, I was in this place of grave despair. Um toward the end of March and beginning of April. And then I started to remember those lessons that I had experienced from the last time I was in a place of grave despair when I was experiencing pain in almost every moment. And, um, and I remembered that at the heart of all those lessons was acceptance. Accepting that I didn't know and I wouldn't know and I still don't know when is the next time that I would touch another person. Um, accepting that uh, things were not the same as I um, I was used to them being. But remembering what my therapist has said when she said, uh, but that's true for all of us. Mm. Because in a moment of global pandemic, it is true for all of us. None of us knows when is the next time things will be or feel the way they used to. And um, in the wisdom of what Myra told me at that time, my therapist Myra, um, things will probably never be the same way they were before. It's just that we're all experiencing a very acute moment of that. Hmm. And that's how I think in some ways of this, um, this moment of racialized violence that we find ourselves in as well. That... Um, it's an acute moment, but it represents the same thing that was always true. And um, it's the always, as as the as the move as the news cycle moves from um, COVID nineteen to. Ahmaud Arbery, and then Christian Cooper, and then Breonna Taylor, and then George Floyd, and then Tony McDade, and then, and then, and then, and then. Um, I had a moment when a a friend of mine reached out to me. She's one of my 
oldest friend. We met on the first day of sixth grade, just after my family had moved from New Jersey to Michigan. She texted me, and um, she said something about, you know, she wanted to see how I was doing, and she was um, thinking about, you know, how terrible the world could be sometimes. Um I told her I appreciated her checking in and she, she said that she was, you know, she was, I wish I could remember verbatim, but it was something like she, she felt bad about the fact that like, um, you know, some horrible white people could, um, so terribly, could cause so much pain, basically. And, um, she's a white woman herself and I responded to her by saying it's whiteness it's white supremacy it's anti-black racism those things are there even when the white people aren't and I said um Racism is unrelenting Mm -hmm. and working against it, you know, as an anti-racist educator is unending and living under it while having to work against it is excruciating. Mm And the recognition that anti-black racism would be coterminous with my entire life was a source of tremendous despair. Hmm. And that's where I was sitting for a number of days, and I think I may still be there, in the reminder This moment is a reminder for me that all the work that I have been doing for the past two decades as an anti-racist educator and all the labor I've been engaged in for nearly four decades as a black woman in the United States of America has not led to the end of the thing under which we're all suffering. Hmm. And I'm reminded of what I say to students regularly when having conversations with them, especially about, um, you know, I just, I, I've been so fortunate to have students who are just, um, just have a tremendous political consciousness or tremendously socially engaged and oriented toward justice and um, and can feel overwhelmed sometimes and have, you know, a number of people have asked me, students have asked me in the past, like, what do you, how do you, what do you do? Like, how do you, what do you do <laughs> in all of this, you know, when you're just one person, even when you're one person working with other people? And I always say, you find your place in it, you know, like you find what that thing is that motivates you centrally and then you find your place in doing that. So my thing is that I am working to end racism. Mm -hmm. Everything I do every day in every moment, every choice I make is about ending racism. I never imagined that I'm going to do that on my own, nor do I imagine that that's going to happen in my lifetime. And I keep doing the work anyway, because that's my work in the world. I say that. I've been saying that for years. And I say it just like I said it just then, with a steady voice, sometimes with a smile on my face. And in this moment of the past few weeks, suddenly that felt exhausting. Mm. I'm exhausted knowing that I'm going to continue for my entire life in every moment, every choice I make, working against something that's not going to end in my lifetime. 
can never see the end of it and just keep doing it anyway is exhausting. Mm-hmm. And so that's how I feel right now in this moment. You know, just a few moments ago, I was having a um, a Zoom call with uh, some former students of mine who recently graduated without without getting to have an in-person graduation from college. And just last night, I I had a, a Zoom call with um, some former students and past colleagues of mine from Oberlin who all now work in different places, many of us in higher ed. Um, and we laughed so hard about something. It was the hardest I had laughed in 10 years. I had to stand up to breathe. I was <laughs> laughing so hard. My abs are still sore today from that laughter. Mm-hmm. And in those moments, I was feeling overflowing joy. Mm-hmm. And in this moment, as has been the case for a number of moments these past few weeks, I feel exhausted. Mm-hmm. I really, I just, I have no words to express the depth of gratitude for you sharing and reflecting on these experiences, um, which really, truly underscore this moment of precarity and isolation that we're in. And I think really, really highlight the significance and the profound national state of mourning and grief and pain that we're collectively in given this this dual pandemic um, of both COVID but also of the white supremacist and anti-black racism, police brutality, and state-sanctioned violence. And I'm grateful that you shared so openly about how that's been impacting the pain you felt in your body and you cited specific experiences dating back to 2012. Um, and that pain has only been exacerbated since then. Um, with that, especially given what you've most recently shared about kind of your lifelong commitment to anti-racist education and eradicating racism as your daily due diligence in this world and what you see your cause and your purposes. I'm wondering how you have thought about um, the ways in which your own identities that you started this uh, critical dialogue with, right, of being Ghanaian American, of being black identifying woman, um, with just existing in this world with very visible markers um, that make people read you in particular ways. Um, how have you navigated the limited access to space that you've had carrying those identities? Um, how have they come up for you? Which ones have been most salient, or has it really been all of them? Um, what are the different ways you've kind of really um, activated an authentic self, I think, given this moment of precarity that we're in and when our identities as black people and as black women have been so targeted um, always, but now especially feels so volatile and so intense. You know, one of the things that I've been doing for the past couple of months since, since working from home starting in March I leave my video off mm. on the video conferences. Mm-hmm. I leave my video off. I have taken the majority of my meetings since the middle of March 
in a robe that my dad got made for me last mm. time he went to Ghana and that he handed out to all of us kids um, around the holidays when we saw each other at the New Year. I've been in that robe almost every day. Mm. Um, I had the good fortune of being interviewed for an article that was in the New York Times about loneliness in the time of the pandemic. And um, they couldn't send a photographer to take a picture, but they wanted a photo of me to illustrate the article. And so I took a photo of myself and, um, you know, and, and, uh, and worked it through Photoshop and then, and sent it back to them. And that picture is me in that robe that I um, have almost not taken off. Um, all this time except to, you know, go out and take walks. And um, my way of being authentically me, I found upon reflection at some point in this period of isolation, um, was just to be here by myself and not to be seen. Mm. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that's not something I went into it with intentionally. It's just that I had a moment. I remember I was looking at myself in the mirror, I think, just brushing my teeth or something. And suddenly I had a thought. I thought about how long it had been since I had judged anything about my own appearance. I thought how many weeks it had been since I, since I had... Um, judged myself about how I look, about, you know, whether it was time to get another manicure and pedicure or, you know, whether it's time to get my locks retwisted or, um, you know, uh, how my lipstick looked. Or, it, it had been weeks and I hadn't thought about any of that. And that was liberating because I have decades of experience with body dysmorphia and um, developed practices of disordered eating that I think were endemic to my upbringing in a predominantly white suburb in the Midwest. And, um, and I realized that um, it was a relief for me not to be seen, not because I think I'm ugly to see. I don't. I, I used to. There were many years of my life growing up as a dark-skinned black girl in predominantly white suburbs when I was certain that I was ugly and that that must somehow explain the treatment that I got at the hands of various other people who encountered me in that place. Um, I don't believe that anymore. Far from it. I think I am gorgeous. <laughs> um, but I study beauty. That's my, my scholarship centers on beauty and its relationships to gender and race and national identity in the U.S. And uh, the reason I started studying beauty was because I felt ugly. And after some uh, 15, almost 20 years now of studying beauty, I know I'm not ugly. But what I do know is that I was never wrong to think that I lived in a world that received me as such. Because I live in a dark-skinned black body as a woman in the United States of America, 2020, under persistent anti-black racism that has spanned my entire life. And so 
what I came to realize in the period of quarantine that I hadn't realized before is that I carry that set of beliefs, that understanding with me all the time. That quietly every time I walk out into the world to go to work or, um, you know, to meet up with friends socially or whatever it may be, that I am judging my own body. Not because I find it wanting, but because I suspect that other people who are looking at me do. And so it has been liberating to be out from under that gaze entirely for a period of two and a half months. Out of my whole life of nearly 40 years. And that's one of the greatest forms of authenticity, I think, that I've experienced in this whole time. And then the news cycle shifted. And rather than being about the pandemic, it was about all the anti-black violence. Mm -hmm. And that was, that moment, that shift made me realize that even though I'm here, alone in my own apartment, I may be able to get relief from how it feels knowing that other people are looking at me, but I still can't get relief from racism. I can be a black person by myself in my own home space, and I never get to be away from whiteness. Hmm. And I think that's like, um, it's like that chronic pain that I felt. There's a particular kind of, um, there's a particular kind of uh, inescapable quality of lower back pain, I've found. It's not like pain at the extremities where you can like elevate it. And you get some relief, you know? Hmm. The ankle pain, I could ice it and I could raise my ankle and the blood would start to flow in the other direction and wouldn't hurt quite as much. But the back, my back is at the center of my whole body. There was no position that I could be in and get away from back pain because my back is what supports me being able to hold my body upright. Hmm. And when that was compromised, there was nowhere to go to get away from it. Hmm. And whiteness, white supremacy, anti-black racism, it's like that. There's nowhere to go to get away from it. And that means that it has the power to make me feel isolated from my own body. And it also means that um, that I'm in constant pain. Racism is a source of pain. And I'm in that pain as a black woman in the United States of America all the time. And one of the lessons that I learned from the physical chronic pain that I've had is that there is a constant consumption of energy that I experience when I'm in pain. That I wasn't able to be present as a teacher, um, as a as a person in a, in a network of people I care about and love. Um, I wasn't able to be present in the same ways after that accident as I had been before because there was a constant draw of energy that was that pain that I was feeling. So it like, you know, it sapped my reserves rather than operating at whatever, whatever percentage I was operating at. There was some percent, 30% that was constantly in use for pain. And that meant that I only had the remaining 70 or whatever. 
to be who I was. And that's what racism does too. It's chronic pain that saps your energy constantly and means that you only have 70% left at your best moment to be who you are mm-hmm. in a world that hates you. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that has been hardest for me in this moment as, for instance, um, white Facebook friends of mine from high school have come to a place of realization. They, there's something about the video of George Floyd dying, which I've, I've not watched. I refuse to watch it. Because even the still image that I haven't been able to get away from causes me pain. Physical, emotional, mental, spiritual pain. Just the still image. I cannot imagine watching that man die for eight minutes. I can't imagine it. And I won't do it. I refuse. Mm -hmm. But there are white Facebook friends of mine who've watched it. And who have said that there's something about that video that helped them to realize in the way that they hadn't before a week or two ago that racism still existed in our country. They hadn't realized. They didn't know until a week or two ago when they saw that video. And so all these conversations, you know, the the discourse around privilege and racism and violence has exploded social media and I compulsively (laughs) as an anti-racist educator and and as a black woman in the United States of America compulsively have been reading because I want to know what people say I want to know how people are thinking I want to know what are the kinds of arguments that they make so that I can train my responses for the classroom or whatever other context I may have to continue doing this work that is my life's work. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of these folks are like, they're coming to this realization and they, they want to do something. Um, but every once in a while, I'll be reading through one of those threads and I'll bump into a person who, uh, who's like, all lives matter. Or, you know, why is privilege bad? Or, um, you know, if you found yourself getting tense around that black person who came into your job late at night, that's just you being cautious. Don't unlearn that. That's going to help to save your life someday. You know, like that kind of stuff. Or, um, oh, you know, all these people marching in the streets saying this needs to change or that needs to change or the government needs to change this or that for them. They should be taking personal responsibility. This isn't about race. This isn't about race. This isn't about race. Why are you making this about race? This isn't about race. And there is a special kind of suffering that is being in pain and having people negate your experience. You know? When my body was hurting every day, And people would say, well, you look good. Or when I am experiencing the ill effects of anti-black racism every day and people say, you're doing fine. Look at you. It's not about race. Then I'm having to live in my pain and be gaslighted about it at a societal level all at the same Mm. time. Mm -hmm. And the place where I go to seek solace is not a place where I can be free of any of that. There is nowhere to get away from all of that. But the place where I go to seek solace, I find, is with other black intellectuals, academics, artists, members of my family, because 
they're experiencing it too. Not because any of us cannot experience it, you know, not because any of us can get away from it, but because there is something so reassuring in a world of, it's not about race, why are you making it about race? About being in a place where nobody questions that and I don't have to explain it because they experience it too. Or my experiences are affirmed. And I'm received with commisery and love and care. And where I don't have to explain anything to anyone. It's a relief. It's like rest. It's the only thing like rest I've experienced in weeks. If you could offer anything to people right now, particularly black folks who are quite literally dying to have moments of rest um, because of the compounded nature of isolation and hypervisibility, both at the hands of COVID and this pandemic and social distancing, but also virulent racism, what would it be? What what would you say to them right now to encourage their rest? I had this great conversation yesterday with um, a student of mine, also a black woman. She said she was feeling confused. And I noted that word. I was like, you know, if you want, if you want to share, um, I'd love to hear more about what confused feels like for you, what you're confused about. And she talked about being part of a, a black student's um, Facebook group and how she felt reading that group like, um, people believed that there was a right and a wrong way to be engaged right now. And she explained to me that she lives in a major city with her parents who are, I think, in like 70. Um, and um, she doesn't want to go out and be around a lot of people and then come home and be near her parents, but she felt bad. And, um, you know, she felt like she should be out there in the street. And there was all this should and all this expectation and all this explanation, you know, of why she was making this decision. And um, I reflected that back to her, how many times I had heard the word should and how much external expectations seemed to play into her narrative, her judgments of, of what might be right and wrong. And I said to her that one of the places I've come to in my life and in my thinking and in my spirit is that I've done a lot of work to release myself from the word should. By and large, I don't use it in my vocabulary anymore. And I also have worked on adding complexity to my sense of what's right and what's wrong by always focusing on what is the aim that I'm trying to achieve. And rather than saying this is the right thing to do or the wrong thing to do, I now, in my life in general, think in terms of if this is my aim, what is most likely, what do I believe, what do I understand to be most likely to get me to that aim given what I know at mm -hmm. this moment, you know, given the limits of my present knowledge? What do I think is most mm -hmm. likely to get me to that aim? It's not about right or wrong. It's about effectiveness. What will most effectively help me to achieve the thing that I want to achieve right now? And I said to her, so if the thing that you want to achieve is to value your parents' lives because they're also black and their lives matter, 
then maybe you don't go out to the protest on the street. Because that's actually the best decision that you can make in this moment to achieve that aim, you know? And I said, what makes that complicated, what can feel confusing, is when we have multiple aims that are competing. We want to be out at the protest, and we want to be home, helping to keep our families safe. And those aims are at odds with one another. And I said, in that moment, I think you just, you really zero in on the moment, you know? Just as I said earlier about, like, you know, when you ask me, how do I feel? I really think about zeroing in on the moment. How do I feel right now? Right now, what is the thing that is most important for me to achieve? What's the aim that's most important for me to achieve? If that's to keep my parents safe, then I, I stay home right now, you know? And periodically, every so often, I check back in with myself, and I see if that's the same decision that I want to make again and again and again. And I think one of the most important things alongside doing that is not to judge yourself. Mm. Everybody has a different role to play in the work at any given moment. And frankly... If I'm being honest, I don't want to be out on the street right now. Not only because I, you know, like this whole global pandemic thing has totally like stoked my anxieties and I'm like, you know, I'm flipped very quickly and easily into agoraphobia and I'm just like, I don't need to be around people. That's fine. You know, I got past that whole there, you know, like I'm not going to touch or be touched thing. And now I'm like, okay, if we're not going to do that. I don't need to be around anybody. I'm good right here. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that, but then there's also the fact that I'm tired and I feel like there's lots of space out on the street right now, um, for people who aren't exhausted, you know, these mm-hmm. white folks from my Facebook feed who've just come to this consciousness and haven't been doing the same kind of work that I've been doing for the last 39 years, I think they can go do it, mm-hmm. you know? Or anybody who wants to, whether they, they may feel exhausted or not. If this is what they want to do, if they feel called and moved in this moment to go out and be on the street, if that's the aim that's primary for them, it's totally appropriate and an act of love, I think, to go be there. And for me, right now, I'm tired. And so staying in my apartment and resting and laughing until my stomach muscles hurt with friends, that's the act of love. And I think if there's one thing that I would say right now is choose the act of love for you. Always. In every moment. Get in touch with what that is and choose it. Mm-hmm. Because the thing is, as I was reminded in that conversation with, you know, my friends in sixth grade, that racism will likely be coterminous with our entire lives. And so there will be lots of opportunities for you to be on the street or to do this in all different kinds of ways. And so you pick the way that is right for you right now. And what's right means what is best going to help you achieve the aim that is primary for you right now and what is done in the spirit of love for yourself and for others. but especially for yourself, especially Mm -hmm. if you're a black person in all of this right now. Loving yourself is one of the most radical acts that you can engage in Mm. in a world of anti-black racism that hates you. Mm -hmm. Mm. I love that. Personally, I think that's especially essential always, but now. Um, I think that is important for us to remember in the work that we have to do ahead, um, to always prioritize that radical self-love as an act of resistance and an act of refusal. 
Um, and I love the ways in which this moment have allowed you to prioritize that more than previously um, and put yourself first um, and your needs first and allow you to reflect on the ways in which your needs have been unmet. Um, I think that's especially powerful. And I think that's the perfect way um, to end this critical dialogue.